Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this public lecture from the Ralph Miliband series on the future of global capitalism. I am uh, Simon Glendinning, not David Held. Uh, David unfortunately couldn't be with us this evening, but I'm absolutely delighted to uh, be given this opportunity to introduce our speaker tonight. Um, I think I first encountered his mind <laughs> in about 1994. Uh, I was getting ready for a job interview at Birkbeck and it was my first interview and it was in philosophy which is good because I'm a philosopher but it was in political philosophy which is bad because I'm not a political philosopher. Um, so a day before the interview when I was sweating it a bit uh, I was given David's phone number and told that he might be able to help me and I talked to him for about half an hour and he told me absolutely everything I needed to know and told me what I needed to read and it was like political philosophy 101 for job applicants. It was absolutely fantastic. Now uh, he would have got the job <laughs> um, but he already had one. At that time he was uh, in the Open University where he worked in fact with David Held. Um, I came second on that occasion but I was, remain incredibly grateful to David and it was, as I say, my first but not my last encounter with his formidable intellect. Now David uh, left the Open University and is now a highly experienced sports writer, a broadcaster and a journalist. He's the author of a completely brilliant book called The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football and he also wrote the World Football Yearbook which was published in nine languages and ran to three editions. As a journalist he's written for basically every newspaper that's worth writing for in this country, in The Guardian, The Observer, The FT, The Independent, as well as magazines such as The New Statesman and New Left Review. He's a regular reviewer of sports books for The Independent and the TLS. As a freelance reporter He's worked for the BBC, for BBC Radio 4, for BBC World Service, where in fact he's been earlier today, including producing documentaries on football uh, in Jerusalem and the politics of football in Kenya. But not only about football, he's also made a brilliant Crossing Continents programme on the explosion of applicants to the top universities from a small town in India called B Bihar. And uh, he's appeared on other BBC radio programmes, including The World Today, The World Tonight, The Sunday Morning Show, and Africa Have Your Say. And in addition to his extensive writing and broadcasting, uh, beyond his life at the Open University, he's still involved with universities. He's taught sociology of sport at the University of Bristol and has run literacy programmes at both Bristol City and Bristol Rovers football clubs, as well as teaching sport, film and media at the Watershed Arts Cinema, also in Bristol, where he lives. So what's really unbelievably completely astonishing is that there's only one person <laughs> sitting next to me here. <laughs> that lot of uh, interests and background would have provided a good panel discussion. But no, we've got one person only speaking to the title of This Sporting Planet, Global Sport and Global Capitalism. Please welcome David Goldbach. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, this better be good after a write-up like that. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. It's a great pleasure to be here. 
it's an incredibly miserable day out there and uh, so I really appreciate you all staying out um, to hear a little what I have to say. Um, I should say before I begin, this is not going to be a formal academic lecture. It strikes me that on a Thursday evening, um, perhaps a little bit more storytelling is, uh, is what we're all looking for. So I hope you'll bear with me on that. Um, ransacking my past, the Simon just has, I'm reminded of a moment with a very senior if slightly fuddy-duddy professor in Cambridge who was examining my PhD and felt there wasn't quite enough political economy or close attention to the mechanics of contemporary capitalism into it. And he said to me, I do find if one wants to keep tabs on global capital, the best thing to do is to read the Financial Times each day cover to cover. Well, he's not wrong. If you want to keep tabs on global capital, I suppose there are very few better ways than reading the Financial Times cover to cover. I, however, with two small children and quite a lot else going on, find it quite hard going to manage it every day. So what I'm going to offer to you today as an alternative for keeping tabs on global capital and its machinations are the sports pages. And I find increasingly that the sports pages offer either directly or metaphorically or sometimes completely out of left field, as the sporting metaphor goes, an extraordinary lens on the dynamics of contemporary global capitalism. Let me give you just a few examples from the sports pages this year, which you may or may not have been looking at. The first thing that struck me was the African Cup of Nations in Angola. The African Cup of Nations is Africa's premier football competition. Uh, founded in 1957, it's one of the oldest in the world, and it is one of the only really significant cultural expressions of Pan-Africanism that remains in the African polity. This year, it was in Angola, which struck many people as quite odd, given the state that Angola has been in over the last few years. Um, but of course, this, as often with international sporting competitions, was the coming out party for Angola. The end of the Civil War and the arrival, of course, of oil. What struck me most looking at the Angolan Cup of Nations initially was the stadiums. Angola, as you know, does not have a lot of infrastructure outside of oil rigs and pipelines and the new roads being built uh, there. But it does have four extraordinary football stadiums built from nothing in the last two years. How did this happen? Angola's construction industry, to my knowledge, is not a particularly strong economic sector. And the answer, of course, is China. Every one of those stadiums was built not just by Chinese contractors, not just designed by Chinese architects, but built by Chinese labor, brought wholesale by contracting companies to Angola for the duration of the construction. And more extraordinary than that is that this is just the tip of the iceberg of China's use of football, sports and its immense capacity for building stadia in Africa. There are 15 countries in Africa today that have already received, are receiving or are about to receive Chinese sports stadiums. Now, as we know, the Chinese state is no different from any other, and they are not doing this from the benevolence of their heart. 
but of course as part of their wider strategy of ensuring their access to governments and countries which have the raw materials that are required for their phenomenal industrialization. The other note it struck me uh, in Angola, uh, and some of you may have read about this, is that we will not be remembering Angola 2010 for the football, which was for the most part utterly dismal. Uh, most teams performed with the exception of the Ghanaians below themselves. The Algerians completely and utterly lost their heads in their game with Egypt and only some of the minnows showed us a little bit of class on occasion. What it will be remembered for, of course, is the attack on the Togolese football team who were travelling from Congo Brazzaville, Pont Noir, their training base, to Cabinda. I hadn't known much about Cabinda before Angola, but once again, a quick glance at the sports pages introduces us to the political geography of the world in an interesting fashion. Cabinda, for those of you who don't know, is a small enclave entirely surrounded by the two Congos, but part of Angola. It's a leftover from the Portuguese colonial era and the securing of bases across the Atlantic coast. What on earth? were they doing? Holding a, a football contest in Cabinda, 150 miles from anywhere in Angola, and phenomenally complex and difficult to reach for all of these teams and media and so on as part of the tournament. What of course is happening is a very public statement from the Angolan government about who runs Cabinda and where sovereignty lies, because of course Cabinda is not merely an enclave, but is the home to one-third of Angola's oil resources, all offshore, which have brought in an extraordinary amount of money to the Angolan economy. And incidentally, one of the reasons I didn't go to Angola is, have you ever tried to book a hotel in, uh, in Luanda just at the moment? It's going to cost you something in the region of $1,000 a night. Um, hyperinflation from the oil economy for you. Um, on their way to Cabinda, the Togolese uh, were met by an armed party at the border, just inside Cabinda, a 30-minute gun battle uh, um, uh, then ensued with their Angolan guards, and tragically, three members of the Togolese squad, two players and one coach, were killed, others were injured. Um, the Angolan government, incidentally, are totally culpable because they knew exactly what was going to happen. And it is also an object lesson in awarding mega-events because, of course, CAF, the Confederation of African Football, who had to make a political call and decide whether Angola and Cabinda were um, safe for international tournament football and the gaze of the global media, failed to notice that the peace treaty that was signed in 2006 in Angola between the Angolan government and the uh, resistance and independence forces in uh, Cabinda, who are known as Fleck, which always strikes me like something out of a James Bond movie, Fleck. Um, they signed a peace treaty. What they didn't notice was who the peace treaty was signed with. And the peace treaty was signed with an ex-rebel who was at the time languishing in a Dutch prison, sprung from that prison by the Angolan government and turned into the representative of the Cabindan Liberation Movement. He duly signed the peace treaty, nobody else signed the peace treaty, nor was there a process of amnesty or disarmament, and the man was then installed as the Minister for Human Rights in Angola. Um, he obviously wasn't looking too hard in Cabinda. 
Just to begin with, as you can see, just a simple story, a silly football tournament in Africa, and suddenly the world of China in Africa, infrastructural development, liberation movements, the nightmare that the oil economy brings is laid out before us. English football has also been exercising me in terms of the way in which capital works. And I don't know if there is a better example of the overweening self-importance and arrogance of the financial class and business class in this country married with their stupendous incompetence and the total and utter failure of any form of regulation than the current state that English football finds itself in. On the one hand, we have had, what is it now, since 1992 and the creation of the Premiership, almost 20 years of uninterrupted growth, the expansion of commercial income streams, an enormous quantity of money flowing into English football so that it is now, without doubt, the richest league, football league in the world, and closing in on the bare mouth that is the NFL, an $8 billion a year business in the United States. And yet, after effectively semi-privatising what I consider to be the national treasure, which is the Football League structure in this country, and taking it into their own control, after receiving this gigantic quantity of money and exposure, what do we find? We find unsustainable levels of debt, we find an array of exotic, impossible um, financial mechanisms by which debt can be massaged and managed, a succession of foreign owners um, it, who uh, have, it changed, changed, have allowed these hand, clubs to change hands, and who in the process have frankly ripped them off. Anybody who examines Manchester United's accounts uh, that have come out recently will see that the Glazers, having borrowed the money at interest rates approaching 40% per annum on some of the bonds that they have issued, have not only failed to increase the profit profitability of Manchester United in any great way, despite the massive raising of the prices of corporate boxes and tickets, but they have taken something in the region of £35 million out of Manchester United in the last year. For what? Four members of the Glazer family Four members of the Glazer family have been made loans by Manchester United of £1.5 million each. Another £15 million has been claimed in management fees. And yet, there is no, these people had, you know, there is no fit and proper person um, test that in any meaningful way regulates who is allowed to take these clubs over. There is no proper transparency in the way in which the auditing of these companies are, is accounted. And what is trumpeted as great entrepreneurial power, verve and spirit on the part of the Glazers turns out to be nothing more than an act of financial theft. And this is at Manchester United, who, given their global profile and enormous turnover, managed to remain relatively solvent. When we look at the situation down on the south coast in Portsmouth, for example, the true state of affairs in more middle-sized and medium clubs is revealed. I mean, what have we got to when the capital in control of, British fo of English football not only fails to turn a profit, which of course we expect because anybody who invests in football thinking they're going to make a profit shouldn't be in business in the first place because this is truly not an industry in which large rates of return are available to anyone. 
But they have failed even to pay the St John's ambulance. The Premiership owes collectively over £100,000 to the St John's Ambulance. For those of you who are not familiar with St John's Ambulance, some of you may not be, they are volunteers who provide first aid services at large public occasions, fates, festivals and football matches. We can't even pay the St John's Ambulance. You know, extraordinary. One last thing from the uh, papers that has tickled my fancy, and it seems to me to speak to the state of global capitalism, is our old friend Tiger Woods. And those of you who are not familiar with Tiger Woods, let me tell you a little bit about him. He is unquestionably the greatest golfer of the age. A man whose success, whose coolness under fire, whose complex multiracial roots, and whose sudden explosion from obscurity to global fame offers irresistible parallels, I would say, with Barack Obama, who though wedded to basketball, is actually a rather keen golfer on the side. Tiger Woods was named as the number one world sporting individual brand by those friends of global capitalism at Forbes magazine in 2009. The brand, Tiger Woods, let alone the human being and his personal income, is worth something in the region of $90 million. Nothing compares to Tiger Woods. David Beckham, Cristiano Ronaldo, these guys are all little league. Why is it that Tiger Woods should have been able to amass such a fortune beyond his dominance, obviously, of golf? Tiger Woods is a very special brand. People have been trying to build brands in sport to elide the persona and the course and the trajectory of a sporting life with that of commercial products. Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer and the IMG Sports Agency pioneered this, though of course, you know, footballers and sports people have been putting their name on soap and chocolate and beer and razors for a hundred years. But IMG, Nicklaus and Palmer took it to a new level. Michael Jordan and Nike raised the game and the bar once again in the 1980s and took the phenomena truly global. But in Tiger Woods, we've had something special. Why is this? Because Tiger Woods has offered himself as a product to the capitalist economy that is for them out of this world. Focused, relentless, dynamic, imperturbable, unemotional, highly instrumental. He is the perfect sporting icon for business class, for the club class age. <coughs> Tiger Woods fits the bill. What sports person can we think of that has got a sponsorship, not from a razor company or a company that sells to individual consumers, but from Accenture? A company that sells ways how to sells sells methods to other companies on how not to pay their tax and how to fire most of their staff. Only, only Tiger Woods could possibly offer that. When I look at the fate of Tiger Woods in recent um, in recent months, you I'm sure all know that he had a rather bit of an accident in his SUV with a fire hydrant in the gated community in which he lives in Florida. His personal life has unravelled. It is not our purpose to go into the details of that, though. Please ask me questions later if you choose. What is so interesting about this, I suppose it reminds me 
bizarrely, when I think about Tiger Woods and indeed the American economy of which he is such an integral part, of the words of Marx in the Communist Manifesto, who wrote the extraordinary transformatory powers of global capitalism. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profane. And man is at last forced to, forced to face soberly the real conditions of his life and his relationship with his fellow men. And it struck me, yeah, you must have been thinking of Tiger Woods. Because in an, I was in Milan airport and I passed an Accenture advert and there's Tiger in the rough like this, cool and determined. And it said underneath, what happens next is up to you. And from behind me, I heard a voice shout out. What happens next is you crash your car, mate. <laughs> In an instant, the carefully crafted synergy between international corporate brands and a sporting life worth hundreds of millions of dollars destroyed. Nothing. He will never, ever, ever be taken on by those guys again. We'll see what Gillette and the rest of them do. But that dimension, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds in the fictitious value columns of accountants and brand managers, wiped out. It also tells us something, it seems to me, about the nature of the capitalist economy, not just in America, but everywhere, but most acutely in America. And those of you who know Richard Sennett's work and the work on the corrosion of character under advanced capitalism, is that Tiger Woods represents, and why he was so successful, is that he represents a, re a mode of being, those real relations that Marx talked of, where the skill set required for success in many aspects of American and indeed corporate life all over the world is a relentless instrumentalism and what I consider to be a pathological level of self-mastery of the emotions that is only bought at the price of the corrosion of the capacity for intimacy and a stable and balanced sense of self. And everything that I have seen about Tiger's range of addictions seems to point to precisely that. Um, I could go on about Vancouver, but we'll go on. There's probably enough Vancouver for you guys at the moment. Um, I have no idea what the time is, by the way. Oh, I've got 30 minutes. Oh, okay. Oh, good. I've got a clock there. Sorry about that. I had no idea I had a clock. Um, it's easy, in a way, to take sport as a model and as a metaphor and as a lens for what is going on in the world of global capitalism. And it is not difficult, from the political position from which I start at any rate, to find all the usual pathologies and problems with capitalism in the realm of sport. Capitalism and money, although utterly essential if you want to put on the circus and you want to see the show of global sport, also carries with it a range of negative consequences. Some of them are aesthetic and about the nature of the spectacle. I, for one, am increasingly annoyed to the point of frustration and screaming that the people who run football in this country have decided that we don't want to listen to the crowd anymore. 
what we want to listen to before the beginning of the game is a series of third-rate pop music that nobody in the crowd wants to listen to and adverts. Well, I have to tell you, that's not what I'm going to the football for. I'm going to the football because I want to listen to my fellow human beings make noise. And I cannot begin to tell you how it destroys the whole meaning of solidarity, the humanity, the closeness of that experience to have a bunch of adverts and second-rate Radio 1 tunes belted out to me so that none of us can hear ourselves. Capitalism and money bring problems in other ways. Um, imbalanced, competitive imbalance is the obvious one that we see in the premiership where the usual mechanisms of the market are ensuring that those who already have the most get more, those at the bottom have none, and woe betide those who for one reason or another should falter in the race to accumulate capital. The fate of Newcastle, Norwich, Chel Charlton and all of those other teams that fall out of the Premiership and find themselves with unsustainable debts and wage levels thrown to the dogs in the lower divisions. In a way, it's an easy set of arguments. What I really wanted to talk to you about today and to talk about to myself, I suppose, because uh, I've been thinking about it so much, is whether sport offers any resistance to these things. I mean, one thing you've got to say with global capitalism, for all the bad, all the downsides, it's very good at generating resistance. The last 200 years suggests that wherever capitalism goes, anti-systemic movements of one kind or another rise up to oppose it, to challenge it, to challenge its logics, to offer alternatives, to insist on some kind of regulation or limitation to its dynamics. Does sport in any way offer any kind of resistance, any kind of alternative, other ways of thinking? There are many, particularly from the Marxist community over the years, who have argued that sport is nothing but bread and circuses. At best, at worst, merely vacuous distraction. I have been lucky enough in the last two years to work for BBC World Service, who, God bless their cotton socks, have sent me around the world to watch sport one way or the other. And what I wanted to do this evening was share with you some of those moments that illustrate and speak to this question of resistance, of alternative values, of other ways of doing things. So let me take you through some of the trips. The first thing to say, most definitely, is that while sport, it's not entirely clear that sport may offer an opportunity for resistance, it sure offers an opportunity for bad behaviour, racism, hatred and xenophobia. I was in Israel two years ago and I went to see a team called Beta Jerusalem. And Beta Jerusalem caught my attention because I was reading uh, a Reuters wire that said fans of Beta Jerusalem have been appearing on contested hilltops around East Jerusalem with settlers. The settler movement plant their orange flags, the Beta Jerusalem fans plant their black and yellow flags that the team plays in. I thought, hmm, who are you guys? So I had a little look around and it turns out the previous week the whole of Israeli football had held a minute's silence in memory of Yitzhak Rabin who had been assassinated 12 years beforehand just after the signing of the Oslo Accords. Every stadium had remained silent, but for one. And at Beitar Jerusalem, not only did they break the silence, 
but they sang songs in praise of Yigal Amir, the settler who gunned Rabin down. So I thought, well, I better go and take a look at you guys. I went to see Beitar Jerusalem, who have their roots in the Sephardi community. Beitar, uh, I mean, you may or may not know, but Israeli football is pretty much divided up between Beitars, Hapoels, and Maccabees, which have their original roots in the different elements of the Zionist movement that founded the State of Israel in 1947-48. Beitar were always from the right, much more extreme nationalists, whereas Hapoel is the part, was the movement of the trade union movement of the left, Maccabee were in the middle. So you have Maccabee Tel Aviv, you have Hapoel Tel Aviv, but you also have Beitar Jerusalem. And Beitar over the years has come to be the party of the football team of Likud. It's pretty much in the contract if you become leader of Likud. Even if you don't like football, and everybody tells me that Netanyahu really can't bear football, but you've got to fake it for Beitar. And even, even Bibi shows up to see Beta when required. <coughs> so I go with these guys to an FA, what's uh, the equivalent of like a third round game in the FA Cup. And they're playing Ahi Nazareth. Ahi Nazareth, well Nazareth, like many cities in Israel, is actually two cities. There's the new Nazareth, which is Jewish, which is up on the hill. And then there's old Nazareth, which is down at the bottom of the hill, which is a mixture of Arabs and Christians, predominantly Arab. And Ahi Nazareth, it's like going to see, I don't know, Manchester United versus Walsall at Walsall on a cold Tuesday night. So I go to see Ahi Nazareth, and you know, immediately you get there, you're in Arab Israel. How do you know? Because you've been on a six-lane motorway, perfectly lit, beautifully surfaced for the previous hour, and suddenly you're going, oh, where are the lamps? Where's the pavement? Where's the guttering? There isn't any, because we've reached Arab Israel. And there, on high on a hill, is the stadium. The stadium is extraordinary. 4,000 people in it, only one stand. On the opposite from side of us, there's the stand that is completely, looks like a bomb city. There's just the stumps, the concrete stumps, right, of old bleachers there. We're all in one stand, and then behind the goals, we've got huge concrete walls. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with what the concrete walls in the separation wall in Israel look like. I think they've got a job lot at Ahi Nazareth of the same concrete blocks with the barbed wire and stuck them behind the goals. Okay, so we're on the terraces with the Beitar fans. And there is a very serious atmosphere. I would say there's approximately 1,000 police officers or soldiers for 4,000 fans. And they're armed. And those of you who've been to Israel will know when, when they're armed, we're not talking, you know, we're not talking little guns. We're talking ooh, big machine guns, right? We're talking in the car park next to the team buses armoured personnel carriers with water cannons on. And I was informed when I was there that the most senior police officer in the whole of the north of Israel was personally in charge of the event. At which point I turned to my producer and said, Anna, have you ever been to a football game before? And she said, no, it's my first. <laughs> what a fantastic bat baptism of fire. So we walk into the stadium, we're on the terraces with the Baytown fans, and Emotions are running even higher than usual in Israel. I did realize emotions do run high. And um, the previous week there had been a shooting at a yeshiva in Jerusalem. And uh, nine um, 
nine students of the yeshiva have been gunned down by a previous uh, ex-Palestinian employee of the, um, of the yeshiva. And um, a minute's silence had been kept in every football stadium in Israel, but for, of course, Ahi Nazareth Stadium the previous week, where they'd sung, sung songs in praise of it. So the cycle of hatred and fear and retribution continues. The Minister of Sport is present on the pitch with the Ahi Nazareth um, uh, management, and they make a peace offering. Extraordinary. They make a peace offering to the Beitar fans. And uh, this is all announced on the, uh, on the microphones and all of that. And they bring two great big trays of baklava, yeah, the cakes, to the, um, to the wire. And they hand it over to the wire. So it's like, you know, peace, guys. So, of course, we're all, I'm hungry at this point. I have to say, you know, the, uh, the standard fare at the, uh, it's all a bit acidic and a bit kind of olive and weird beans for me uh, as a kind of, gen as, a, uh, as an English, with an Englishman's stomach. So I see the baklava and like me and all the fat guys are going, yeah, give us the cakes. So we're all eating the cakes and suddenly this massive argument breaks out. Huge argument, right? And like nobody's eating the cakes anymore. I've got someone translating, and it turns out they're basically saying, can we accept this piece? Can we accept this gift? An argument ensues. And then the biggest of them suddenly stands up, and what he barks out in Hebrew with the baklava above his head is, we don't eat these, these are from the trash people. And in full view of the Ahi Nazareth fans, he dashes the tray of baklava to the ground and stamps on it sets the tone for the game. It gets worse. Well, worse. It gets more surreal. Beitar are always going to win this game. They're always going to win this game. But it's nil-nil at half-time. And I have been looking for the man in charge of the ultra group um, who runs Beitar, who runs, who are called La Familia. And they're modelled on the Italian style of fan support. <clears throat> uh, but they're called Beitar. And amazingly, I... I the guy who's in charge, A, is a tax accountant with PwC Israel, which is kind of interesting. And these are kind of, these are quite serious, quite nasty people. But it's always the same. There's always someone with brains in charge. And um, secondly, part of the reason that I was going was to ask, are you mainstream or are you just truly out on the edge in your attitudes and opinions? What sort of barometer of you are of Israeli public life? And this guy is called Guy Israeli. I mean, if that's not an everyman's name, I don't know what is. <laughs> anyway, I finally spot, spot Guy Israeli at half-time. And I spot him at half-time because when the whistle goes, about 50 people charge to the back of the um, stand where there's a high wall, high concrete wall. And they put Beitar flags on their head, right? And those of you, I don't know if you've ever been to the Western Wall or if you've been in a synagogue. I spent a lot of Yom Kippur's in my youth in a synagogue watching old men go, I'm eight which we call in Yiddish is dovenering, right? Where you rock back and forth on your heels and you're praying. They're all praying at the wall with Beitel scarves over their head. And I said slightly glibly, I suppose you're praying for a goal at half time. And uh, they said to me, no, when I see a million Arabs in this society praying, I am worried. I want them to see me pray. What an extraordinary thing to do at a football match. It's the third round of the FA Cup, all right? And that's what's going on. 
Just to finish this story, just the sort of awfulness of Beitel, um, is that I then went to see them play at home the following three days later in Teddy Stadium in Jerusalem. And um, it's very interesting, the way in which these ultras operate is very much like the settler movement. You've got the main bank of people over in the West Stand, right, where most of the action and the chanting is, but they don't leave it at that. What they do is they send out patrols. They set out and establish little groups in other parts of the stadium, right, in an effort to spread their noise and to push the other members of the crowd into chanting their chants. In the same way that the settler movement is forever going, oh, we'll, we'll just put you know, uh, a mobile phone thing up on that hill. Well, maybe we need a hut there now. And, well, maybe we need a whole settlement there. Same logic. One chant dominates the evening. One chant dominates the evening. And it's Kali Ramat Gal, Kali Ramat Gal. What does this mean? Kali is their goalkeeper. He's a Croatian. Ramat Gal, it turns out, is shorthand for being uh, in charge of the Israeli Defence Force. It's a sort of truncation of a longer Hebrew word. So they're basically saying, Kali for field marshal, Kali for general. And it's like, he's done nothing all game. They won 3-0, he's barely made a save. What's all, what's all this about? Callie has been on television the previous night. And he gives an interview in English. And he says, my friends from Croatia text me and say, how can Israel allow missiles to fall on Ashkelon and Sidrot? When we had them, he says, when we had these kinds of problems in Croatia, we knew how to deal with it. Kill, destroy, everything. It's time for Israel to show its strength. So, Kali Ramat Gal. And what was so extraordinary on that occasion that it's not just the ultras singing, it's not just the little outposts, it's everyone. It's 27,000 people. It's the guy next to me who's a taxi driver, you know, in Jerusalem, and his two kids. And they're all singing. Kali Ramat Gal. I don't want to, to draw any more conclusion from that other than to suggest that Guy Israeli is more of an everyman than an extremist than I originally thought. On the other hand, and at the other end of the scale, football in particular offers us the most uplifting and the most extraordinary challenges, both to inequalities, ethnic differences, and the triumph and dominance of market forces. I was lucky enough to go to Nairobi last year, where I went to a place called Mathari. Mathari is the oldest informal settlement and slum. It's 250,000 people living on a postage stamp. There are no toilets. I mean, there are no toilets unless you want to pay. You're actually these are some of the poorest people in the world, and they're paying to go to the toilet. Because if you don't, it's what they call the flying toilet, which is a plastic bag. Mathari, 250,000 people in this nightmare valley, rising smoke and filth rising out of it. But Mathari is home to, without doubt, the most successful NGO in the whole of Africa, the Mathari Youth Sports Association. 20 years ago, a man called Bob Munro, Canadian UN worker, is walking through the slums of Mathari, and these kids say, can you be our referee? Can you be our referee? And he says, well, I'll be your referee 
if you help me clear all the shit, and I do mean shit, off of this little patch of grass where we're, we're going to play, this patch of dirt. And from that exchange, the Mathari Youth Sports Association was born. It now has 25,000 kids in the slums of Nairobi playing organised football, including 5,000 girls. This is the deal. It's one point for a draw, three points for a win, and six points for an environmental clear-up. And you better bring your captain and at least seven members of your squad if you want your six points. If you do show up, Mathari ought to give you the gloves, the wheelbarrows, and the shovel. And these 25,000 kids are now the most significant municipal sewage and clearance agency in the whole of Kenya. They are the only people keeping this place clean. But more than this extraordinary exchange, Mathari Youth Sports Association has built the most amazing network of social capital and social organisation across the slums of Nairobi. They have 15 libraries, they have uh, health projects, they have education projects, and most brilliantly, and most amazingly of all, they have created a self-educated body, a self-educated cadre of social entrepreneurs and social leaders. Right? This is not an NGO run by anybody from outside Kenya. This is an entirely indigenous operation. So that when the post-election violence happened in late 2007 and early 2008, who is getting food to people in Mathari who can't get food because there's too much violence? Who is housing the people when the Kenyan state sure isn't housing anybody? The Mathari Youth Sports Association and its extraordinary network of characters and, of course, the trust and respect that it has built from people of all ethnicities because, of course, the policy, as you might imagine, of the Mathari Youth Sports Association is, um, is, you know, that ethnicity is, no, is not a factor in who gets to play in any of their teams. Um, so they are a truly, and they are in fact being exported now to um, Tanzania and Uganda, where similar programs can be expected. So the Mathari Youth Sports Association, the solidarity and joy that playing sport brings is just truly, truly mind-boggling. I met kids, you know, Man, what they've lived through, they've lived through a hundred lives, you know, compared to what I've lived through. And football and playing for Mathari is a transformatory experience, an island, a haven of peace, of solidarity in what is often a sea of troubles. Within those two extremes, and they really are the good guys and the bad guys in the world of global sport, there are some slightly more... Um, uncertain territory and I suppose that's what I really some of the things I'm really interested in exploring is where what are those sources of alternative values and resistance in global sport that is displayed one area it seems to me which we are we've been here before in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union under communism um, is that sporting events particularly football offer an opportunity for political expression and political protest in totalitarian societies that is otherwise often not available. I was lucky enough to go to Cairo last um, November, December to see the derby, which is between Zamalek and Al-Akhli. 
Zamalek and al-Akhli um, emerge at the beginning of the 20th century when Egypt is occupied by the British. And they have always represented two separate wings of the Egyptian Chironese elite. Al-Ali, which translates from the Arab as the nation, have been the team, were the team uh, at the beginning of the 20th century of Republican nationalist bourgeoisie within Cairo. Right? It was always Egyptians, not <coughs> foreigners. It was the representative, the emergence of an independent Egyptian nation and nation state represented through their football team and their wider sports club. The eternal enemies began as al Maktoum, which means the mixed, because they were never an exclusively Egyptian operation nor an exclusively Islamic one, but have always attracted the Coptic population of Cairo as well as the merry foreigners who lived in Cairo in the early part of the 20th century. They became associated with the conservative, royalist, but more cosmopolitan wing of the Cairoese bourgeoisie. And they became, quite soon afterwards, Farouk, named after the king. So that's a pretty close tie. No ambiguity in where your politics are. This opposition at an elite level sustained and animated the culture of both clubs and the derby for many years. However, as I'm sure you're aware, even a cursory understanding of contemporary Egypt suggests that that old division in the ruling class is frankly no more. Uh, most of the Chironese bourgeoisie, certainly the cosmopolitan end of it, have departed the scene as a significant political force. What then does this derby mean? What does this opposition mean? Born of an era of a particular kind of politics that no longer exists. And what I discovered is that in Cairo, football for both sets of supporters has become this strange arena for sending cryptic political messages to themselves, to others, to the government, to the rest of Egyptian society. Let's start with Zamalek. I interviewed a number of the kind of leading fans of Zamalek, where they now have ultra groups modelled on the Italian, the Italian form, where you have independent groups of supporters not officially attached to the club who organise themselves within the stadium to create choreographic displays, organised singing, fireworks, flares, to turn the event truly into a spectacle and in so doing create a degree of solidarity amongst the crowd and above all to take possession of the stadium because that's you know what ultras do it's like this is our curver right the police can't come in no one comes in this is the space that we run that in itself in Egypt is pretty extraordinary I mean this is not a society and certainly not a government that feels comfortable with three people gathering on a corner having a conversation, let alone thousands of unregulated young men organising and doing their own thing in a public place. Most of the time this would elicit a very serious police response in Egypt. But football, because of its peculiar cultural uh, history in Egypt and because of the particular nature of the arena, the stadium, has given them a degree of autonomy that is almost lacking almost anywhere else in Egyptian civil society. In the case of the Zamalek fans, and I should say, you know, the, we're talking, you know, dentists, people who work in marketing for pharmaceutical firms, you know, this is not some market trader. These are very educated, quite well-to-do people in Egyptian terms. And I said, 
why do you support Zamalek? What does it mean to you? And they all said to a man and a woman, because there were a few of those two, is, they looked at me, to, to be a supporter of Zamalek is to be, is, this is the opposition party. That's why I'm a member of Zamalek. And they really meant it. Now, we might look at it and sort of go, you know, if you're not familiar with the kind of politics of football and go, yeah, this is all fantasy bloody nonsense. What are you on about? You know, the opposition party is the, uh, is the brotherhood. And look what's happening to them. This, of course, is true. And yet there is a real sociological and cultural truth in that for those people who live through that experience. Al-Ali, who have won almost everything all the time, are intimately collected. I mean, if you check out, if you want to do a kind of, you know, organogram of the Egyptian elite, a really good place to start is the board of Al-Ali, because you'll find that it's got generals, it's got uh, Air Force Marshals, it's got lots of relatives of people who are in ministries and who are very powerful. It's everyone. It's the business people. It's the people who are making money out of building satellite cities on the edge of Cairo. It is absolutely the core state business elites who've got everything stitched up in Egypt. And they've got football stitched up as well. Now again, is this apocryphal or not? I don't know. I haven't done enough research. I don't know anyone's done enough research. But everybody who's not an Al-Ali fan in Egypt considers football completely fixed. All referees event. There's total pressure to make sure Al-Ali win every time. Every time the government's in trouble, they give Al-Ali a little push. Because as almost everybody in Egypt says to me, what is the average Egyptian man? And it is man in this case. What makes them happy? Nothing makes them happy. The economy sure isn't making them happy. The life in Cairo is not making them happy. The government's not making them happy. Only football. And anyone who doubts the capacity of football in Egypt to raise the emotions and put people on the streets, check out what happened when they played Algeria in their World Cup qualifier in uh, a couple of weeks before I was there in November 2009. Just as a quick, just as an illustration of how how immense a sporting event can be in a country. <coughs> Algeria are playing Egypt for the world, place in the World Cup, last place for an African team at the World Cup. Same thing happens in 1989. Algeria versus Egypt in Cairo. That time the Al Egyptians won, they went to the World Cup. What did the Algerians do? Well, first of all, the team riot. And uh, I don't know if you've ever observed a, um, a VIP box in the Arab world, but what you will invariably find is incredibly large terracotta pots with great big palm trees coming out of there. So the Algerian squad go and pick these up and throw them into the VIP box. They then disappear into the tunnel. There's a fist fight between the two teams and the coaches. And then... At the dinner afterwards, one of the Algerian strikers takes one of these, smashes it on the side of the table, and puts a great big cut across the face of one of the Egyptian doctors. He has been wanted by Interpol for the last 20 years and has not been able to go to Egypt. A great deal of peacemaking was made before the game. This gentleman, Belumi, was actually given an official pardon by Mubarak. So it's quite a thing. You've just got to, got to think, you know, imagine Gordon Brown giving some official pardon to another football. I mean, it's just sort of off the scale of the significance of football. Um, before the game, uh, the Algerian team are attacked in their coach. The Egyptians claim that they broke their coach windows with their own mobile phones. 
Oh, you just really don't know whether to laugh or cry at that point. But the Algerians respond that if you ever get to see it on YouTube, watch the game, because the Algerian guys who've got little cuts have all got bandages that make you think they've been, you know, through the song. Anyway, Egypt win, 2-0. And what 2-0 means is that it's going to a playoff. Oh, my God. So Cairo goes mad. They're up till 6 o'clock in the morning. There's a playoff in Khartoum. Um, incidentally, an Algerian mob uh, in Algiers then ransacks the um, offices of Egypt Air and an Egyptian telecommunications company. And I don't just mean broken windows, I mean ransack computers, desks, the lot. That does not happen in Algiers without somebody giving permission to it. Excuse my cynicism. But, you know, that is, that's got support at a high level when something like that happens. They all go to Khartoum. The Egyptian government pays for 2,000 people at least just to fly out there, you know, possibly more. The stadium has got 15,000, 15,000 Sudanese troops, not police, troops, 15,000. I mean, that makes the Israel game look kind of, you know, relaxed. Anyway, Algeria wins. That's the story of the game. There's one shot, they're better. The Egyptians, they've blown it because they did it in Cairo and they can't do it again. Amazingly, calls start coming in from Egyptians in Sudan to Cairo saying at the end of the game, we're being attacked, we're being attacked. Those of you who are familiar with the street in the Middle East know that the rumour mill is pretty explosive once it gets going. And now that we've got the internet and mobile phones, we're talking, you know, the street on amphetamines. By two o'clock in the morning, the whole of Egypt is convinced that 37 people have been killed in Khartoum by rampaging Algerian fans who are actually either secret service personnel who've been flying out there or are hardened criminals released from prison by the Algerian government precisely for the purpose of the riot. And everybody I met in Egypt, I mean, God, everybody, you know, from the kind of the senior fire officer at the stadium who, um, who said to me, you know, who gave me a really hard time for the BBC not taking the Egyptian line on all of this, you know, to just everybody I met. Everyone's completely convinced. I can tell you, not a shred of evidence. Nothing zilch. All right. Yes, a few stones are thrown at coaches on the way to the airport, yeah? but that is actually it. There is no more. However, the 2,000 people who marched on the Algerian embassy and attempted to burn it down, but for the intervention of the police in Cairo, is for real. Mubarak is actually in Parliament speaking about this the next, the next couple of days. I mean, again, it's just... It's hard because football particularly is so depoliticised in this country. It is hard to imagine just how central to cultural and political life this stuff is. Alright, that's the Cairo. The Cairo, I just that illustrates it. Just to finish on that, the Al Ali Ultras. They were really interesting. Do you know who these guys were who went met us in a clandestine fashion? They're all MBA students at the American University or the German University with very powerful connections to the elite, a lot of money, speak better English than me, and definitely got a fancier laptop than me. And these are the guys who are actually running it. And I pressed them, you know, what is it? You know, what's, what's driving you here? I know you love Al Ali, but you know, what's going on? 
And we were talking about the kind of conflicts they have with the police. And they've been to Ismaili, which is up near the, um, the Suez Canal, uh, about three months before. And uh, this is worth seeing on YouTube. Put in Al-Ali Ismaili, all right? Or Ismailia, I think you pronounce it. They had let off something in the region of 500 naval flares. I don't know if you're familiar with the naval flare, all right? Don't think, like, little, we're talking the flares you need for a very big ship to see you. So we're talking huge. They let off 500 flares. You've never seen anything like it, and nor had the Egyptian police. I mean, it's not often you get that, you know, they're just faced with obvious disorder and unusual behavior. And for once, it's not, they can't steam in. You know, because the usual, the usual reflex is, mm, trouble, go and deal with it. But they can't. Too big, too powerful, too public on television. Now, this may not seem like much sitting in comfortable Aldwych, you know, on a February evening. But I've got to tell you, that is absolutely electric for young people in Cairo. To be able to defy the police en masse, this is unbelievable. And as this guy said, he said... It's a, we're a force to be reckoned with. And in a society where so little of civil society is allowed to organise, where there, is so few, there are so few options, actually being a football ultra and taking the police on in that fashion is the ultimate expression of a political freedom, a political aspiration for a different kind of society. And like I say, these are not guys from the street. This is the elite. Okay. Two last thoughts, because I've hit 7.30, and I need to shut up. There are two other great things that sports, and in particular football, produce that seem to me offer a set of values and resistances to the dominant logic of capitalism. One is solidarity, two is play. Let me tell you two examples of that. Solidarity. We live in an atomized society. This is a sociological truism. I've been listening to it for 30 years. In the global north, we're increasingly atomized, individualized. We live in a deracinated civil society. We're no longer able to connect with our fellow people, blah, 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 blah. Hey, and there's a lot of truth in it, you know? But the capacity of sport to generate solidarities, not in an abstract sense, but in a physical, tangible sense, is for me, absolutely unparalleled. I had the good fortune to go and see Newcastle United, don't laugh, uh, last season as they headed like the runaway train to demotion. Another incident of, yeah, British business elite. You definitely know how to run something. And they, it was the key game. They were playing Middlesbrough. They needed to win this game to have any chance of staying up. It was one of their last home games of the season. And um, I was sitting in the press box and I've been to a lot of football games in my life. I don't know how many. I mean, you know, three figures, lots, and big ones, and noisy ones. I have never, ever, ever heard a noise like this. This wasn't just the noise of repetitive chanting. This wasn't the noise of singing. This wasn't the sort of disaggregated sounds of individuals. This was a wall of noise. A wall of noise so thick and tangible, you could feel it vibrating in your face. I have never heard human beings make a noise like that. Never. It is absolutely... And over what? Over a football club? Over a football game? And we know, of course, that in a one-sport, one-club town, Newcastle United is the emblem of the Geordie nation. It is absolutely central to the sense of civic pride and the unique identity 
and vibrations of the northeast of England and of Newcastle. And I have to tell you, that is a very, very powerful thing to experience. You know, how often do any of us get together with 50,000 people? I don't know about you, I don't do it too often. You know, used to happen more. You know, people, it was much more of a mass society. This was, and it just struck me that the capacity of human beings to organize themselves in a collective fashion and a solidaristic fashion just knows no bounds. How and under what conditions those kind of solidarity can be turned into a political project Ah, the $64,000 question. And as we know, football fans are fickle political activists, difficult to mobilise, difficult to unify, and difficult to find the right enemy against which to turn them. Nonetheless, the potential is truly extraordinary. The second thing is play. If anything blows the logic of capitalism out of the water, it is surely play. Because what is play? Play is for pleasure. Play is for no purpose at all. Play only has its own logics. And the moment you try and buy play, or you try and buy winning, it turns to ash. You know? Money eats the ethic of play if it takes it too far. Of course, that's the, the balancing act of all professional sport. Where's the line? We want the money because, hey, I don't want to watch a game at Hackney Marshes, not too often anyway, because frankly, it's no bloody good. But someone's got to pay for the circus, but where are the limits? And the limits are constantly, constantly being encroached. World Cup 2006 in Germany. Frankly, it's like a multinational business conference. You know, it's beautifully organised, it's smooth as silk, but frankly, it's deathly boring most of the time. And it's incredibly corporate. I walked out of the station at Hanover, and I was just assailed by corporate logos. And on the walk from the stadium to the fan fest, sorry, from the station to the stadium to the fan fest, there's nothing but corporate logos. You want to play a game? You've got to play the continental, stick the ball through the tyre game. All right? That is what's on offer. I get to the foot of the fan fest, which FIFA have established these fan parks with big screens. Good thing. You know, a bit of an extensive search to get in. We get in, and we're waiting for the Brazil-Ghana game to go up on the big screen. We're going to see France and Spain later. Loads of French people, loads of Spanish people. And do you know what? We're all slightly sitting around drumming our fingers. We're having a beer, and the weather's quite nice. But it's like, is this what we came to the World Cup for? Is to look at corporate logos and buy crap from, you know, from Visa card? Surely not. And then, the best thing that's ever happened to me at an international football tournament, like a miracle, somewhere, someone's got a huge, great beach ball, not like a little, like a big beach ball like this, and they flip it into the air. We all watch it go up. And of course it lands on a table, and people flip it, and it goes to the next table. And then they flip it back, and we all start laughing. And I tell you, for the next hour and a half, there's about 400 people, and it gets hysterical. Everyone's now trying to invent more and more ridiculous ways of flipping this ball. You know, there's drunken Spaniards doing handstands on the table, trying to do it with their feet, people making a big... And it's so playful, because that's what we were all desperate for at that moment was that sense of the glorious stupidity and pleasure of flipping a ball around while you have a beer in the sun. And that is a set of values, that is a set of attitudes that however much Continental and Visa and the rest of those guys try and colonise 
the world of spool is ineradicable. And somewhere in there is the force of resistance. How we get it out and what we do with it is another matter. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, amazing portraits of the incredible continuity between sporting life and social life, both within uh, capitalism and in political and religious totalitarian conditions. There's all sorts of areas of life that these continuities are taking place. Uh, we've got time for questions now. There are microphones here, so if you please just wait for a mic to reach you, and then uh, everybody else will be able to hear your question as well. So, who would like to ask? One down here, and then one there. We'll take them one at a time, please. Um, can I ask, was the um, Algerians driving around London in their cars a few months ago, that game, it was? That you, like, do you remember about a few months ago there were a group of Algerians oh, yeah, driving yeah, around yeah, London? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And that was that game that you talked about? Yeah, yeah, the Algerian when they were driving around and freaking out on the Edgware Road. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's after the, the playoff. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's an interesting detail there, isn't it? <laughs> was over there at the back. Well, if I could just add to that, I mean, it wasn't just here. I mean, one of the amazing things about that game is that you've got fighting going on in Marseille, Paris, Algiers, London, mm. and Cairo after that game. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the... Well, it tells us how big the Algerian and Egyptian diasporas are. Mm. But, um, you know, certainly, and in France, it was particularly nasty. So, yeah, all over. Good, yep. You mentioned the relationship between football and culture, and there's this issue in the upcoming South African World Cup of whether the vuvuzela, this loud instrument, should be allowed or whether it should be banned. What's your personal opinion on this? Oh, what the uh, the, the, the the pipe things? Yes, the pipe thing. Oh God, they should be. Everyone should have one. And if people don't like it, it's like, please, welcome to Africa. Oh, who was it? Xavi Alonso didn't like, couldn't concentrate when he was here. We're in the stadium. I mean, get a life. This is Africa's World Cup. This is South Africa's World Cup. And that's how we're going to do it. It's like all the journalists are always moaning, going, oh, the road system's a bit dodgy and the trains don't work. And it's like, hello, what do you think most of the global south deals with all the time? Right? We're going to the Global South. If the World Cup means anything, if it means anything beyond being a corporate jamboree, it is a truly universal cosmopolitan festival. And that means it's everyone's. It means it's the Global South as well as the Global North, and we play by their rules when we go. And that means stop moaning about the transport, you know, stop moaning about the hotel conditions and get planning, because that's what everybody who lives there has to deal with that. And as for the, as for the noise, bring it on. Yeah, one down here. Hi. So my question is um, just, it seems like you had a theory about, or, or basically gave us a good survey about um, ultras and, and through various parts of the world. And uh, you kind of gave us some positive and some negative examples of what ultras are, are capable of. Um, for, I guess, I mean, my point is for better or for worse, we don't really see that in the Western world in terms of England, the top flight, and in America especially, in sporting events and NFL. Um, in, the, in the sense that you don't have, 
the same kind of uh, hooliganism and so forth is, is kind of been washed out for the most part, I think, and what I, my perception is. Um, do you believe that has anything to do with the commercialization of, of the sport, of the top flight, and, and especially, in these, I gave an example of England and the US, um, and I guess you can, you can comment if that's a, a, a good quality or bad quality of commercialization of the sport. The fact that you have more families with money trying to sell to them, the tickets are being sold to them as opposed to young people that you know, would just rather just, you know, protest or, you know. Um, can I just say, it's terribly hard to understand you all through the microphone. It's actually making it harder for me to understand what everyone's saying. So anyway, um, I'll, I'm not sure I caught all of that, so I apologise if I don't answer this right. Uh, good commercialisation and bad commercialisation, place of the ultras. Um, look, I'm not a utopian about this. Like I keep saying, someone's got to pay up, right? So I'm not against a degree of commercialisation. Uh, I accept that there has to be a certain amount of advertising and sponsorship and, you know, I'm not entirely against, um, entirely against that. I think, and I think, you know, commercialization in terms of sort of structural and organizational terms, I prefer American commercialization through centralized leagues, centralized television contracts, attempts to kind of balance out the money, you know, as a variant of sports capitalism. Um, there's a lot to be said for the way America runs it. And, you know, you look at the NFL, how many teams have won it in the last, you know, 15 years of the Super Bowl? Quite a lot. Ten, I would guess. Similarly, MLB. I mean, you know, all right, the Yankees won this year. But, you know, that's only once, you know, and like when you can get a situation that Tampa Bay can come, you know, from absolutely nowhere and nothing and be the worst team in the history of MLB ever and then make it to the Super Bowl... Fantastic. So I think there's a lot of really, really good stuff to be said about that. Uh, there are issues and we could talk about that. Um, so I think structurally there's a lot to be learnt from America. My real issue is when it starts eating into the, um, eating as I say, into the aesthetic of it. And I, you know, I'm not for, um, I understand that you've got to appeal to a broad audience, I'm not the only person, and that there are many forms of pleasure and many ways of enjoying these things. I think the um, endless obsession with clean family entertainment I find just problematic. I'm not saying there's not a space for that, I'm not saying that shouldn't be part of the agenda, but actually I think it just becomes so anodyne, you know, and interferes actually with the atmosphere so much that I do have a real problem with that. On ultras, I mean, you know, once upon a time one had great hopes for the ultras and certainly when it was started in Italy in the late 1960s, you know, you've got people like, um, what are they called, the Leone de Fosse, the kind of original AC Milan law, who are part of the wider kind of, you know, socialist experimentalism that's going on in Milan and those guys are into all sorts of really interesting, you know, football cultural happenings and, you know, stuff, interesting stuff. It's all gone though in Italy. I mean, the ultras are a pale reflection of their original promise. They live these days in a kind of parallel universe. I mean, they're not even watching the game most of the time. It's what really does my head in with those guys. You know, I watched, I went to see the Milan Derby. Sensationally good operatic theatre. I mean, it was fantastic. And these guys, who are meant to be the core of the atmosphere, all they do is they follow their own agenda. They spent most of the most of the match kind of unfurling very cryptic banners to each other about you did this in sort of you know at some game in Kazakhstan and you know stuff. I mean, I had experts with me, and I was like, 
No, I don't understand what it's about either, you know. And we're talking hundreds of messages. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, pre-mobile phone texting because they're unfurling, you know, these sort of strips of um, sheet, you know, across the front of the curver. And then at the other end, they kind of unfurl another one back to them. And, you know, meantime, the game's going on. And I'm just going, what are you on about? So the ultra movement in Italy, I mean, of course, association with organised crime, drug dealing, and they're kind of just sort of mad Italian macho kind of masculinity trip that they're all on has all poisoned it I think actually and what saved the game that I saw is that you know most of the time these days the ultras dominate the stadiums because people are going to football less and less in Italy crap stadiums but da da all sorts of reasons and thank God on this occasion because it was the derby there were 60,000 other people in the stadium who made the atmosphere that was very cool. It's like being at La Scala, but thank God without the music. And uh, I just am like that with opera. Sorry to the opera lovers. I mean, D- I love David, you, you, another point to bring this out. You talked both about a, a kind of um, poison that you can get from a limitless extension of the appropriating power of capital. Yeah. But also a kind of poison that you get from a sort of limitless extension of religiously significant political conflict. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's as it were both of those. What do they corrode? The two things that you value: the play and the solidarity. It's a kind of perverse. Well, it, it, it produces solidarity, of course, those, yeah, yeah. but then you know, with between two separate between two separate groups. I mean, yeah. that's the pros and cons, particularly with football, but with all sport. Is I think it's very rare to be offered a public theatre and a public platform for the collective, you know, an experimental kind of exploration of these things. Where else can we do that? We live in such a privatised world. And I'm kind of suppose my thinking on it is, well, better that than nothing at all. Yeah. But of course that comes, that comes at a price that, you know, if you open the field up, then nasty people That's can take right. it. That's right. I mean, so, some people have talked about fascism in terms of the mobilisation of identitarian emotions, right? That's yep. that way. And, and obviously football has that inside it sure. as well. And that's... But on the other hand, that, that is also a description of certain dimensions of, sol- of interpersonal solidarity. So yep. it's, it's a kind of autoimmune situation where you've got something good which can be appropriated. I mean, I think the great thing with football is that it constantly upsets that stuff as well because of its kind of, you know, however much you pay up and however much you try and fix it, often you lose. Yeah. And so it's a very precarious game. If you're into sort of that kind of identity politics, losing is difficult. Yeah. You know? And it, football and other sports just will trip you up. So pleasingly, it kind of, it's a bit of a minefield in some ways oh, for kind of authoritarian politics. You'll get respect politics. for the opposition at some point as well. Anyway, there's other people other than me who want to talk. This gentleman yeah. too oh, just to the mic. I know David's having trouble with the mic, but it, the, uh, uh, hang on, hang on, wait for the mic. If you don't. No, I know, but people at home listening to the podcast won't hear you. I went out to the Normally go down to South London, so it's quite a great thing to do. Her brother took me to the old den, the old Millwall. And in those days, there was a space between the stand behind the goal and the stand on the west side. There was a grass hill. Yeah. Game for nothing. So I was a young sort of Trotsky, I think, I, I said, well, maybe there are unemployed. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, you know, there's no doubt. What I would say is, I mean, we, we paint football cultures as unidimensional at our peril, you know, because there are solidarities and there are oppositions. There is, you know, emotion fueled by hatred, but there is also, you know, there's also a sense of communality. I mean, it's not been built on, because, of course, the essential logic of the Football League and of football is we support our clubs, we hate what else, but that. But there is also a sense, I would say, and this comes out, you know, in the fanzine culture, you hear it on 606, in that slightly wider culture that there is a wider community of interest. But, you know, in the end, as much as we love Everton or Chelsea, actually, what is the point of loving Everton and Chelsea if you haven't got Tottenham or Liverpool to have a go at? You know, it's no good. It's like, that's the that when the logic of football differs from the logic of the market, is that it's no good getting rid of the opposition. Because no opposition, you know, normally you would buy them up or put them out of business, but no opposition. So I, I think it's, it's a complex cultural political field to enter around issues of racism. I mean, clearly, not just here, but everywhere. That has been a sort of, you, you know, there is unification and there is agreement and a, the sense of a wider football culture beyond um, your individual, you know, team support. I mean, it all strikes me. You know, is a national treasure the Football League? I mean, in this country, particularly because it's 92 clubs. It's like, it really is a way in which, you know, Walsall and Carlisle and Plymouth and all of these places that are not on the map most of the time, we're all part of something bigger, you know, which is what really, not one of the things that knocks me so much about the Premiership is that, you know, there's some, you know, it's club class and an economy class and I think you know in terms of a kind of shared cultural institution like football is so profoundly wrong so I take your point totally it's an obstacle and a problem though it's also part of the pleasure of it I mean let's face it we all love all of that as well um, but there are also opportunities to build something bigger and part of the thing you know who has I mean that's the interesting story is that for most of the 20th century all the attempts to build any kind of alternative unified fan structures and all of that have all failed I think you know through the various social movements around issues of race or issues of gender people like supporters direct who are arguing for alternative forms of ownership we're realizing you know football fans who are very unpoliticized Actually, there are connections and similarities and other kinds of solidarities to be built. But like all political and cultural movements, you know, you've got to make it. It's not just going to spontaneously happen. So I'm a bit of, you know, I'm an eternal optimist on that. <laughs> but I expect to be disappointed. A prisoner of hope. Uh, a question over here. Yeah. Good gag, by the way. I'll definitely be stealing that. Yeah, I, um, I wanted to ask about... Uh, 
you seem to spend more time swanning around the world watching football matches than even I do. Uh, what countries do you think offer a good model for the way football's run? And I, I wanted to offer one myself, which is Germany, which, which has huge, huge crowds and a lot of enthusiasm and uh, crap teams, but they still have 50,000 people cheering and, and so forth. Um, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, it strikes me that in Germany, you know, the good old social market, there it is. In Germany, you, have, you can't own a football club privately. Right? You can only sell a small amount of it. The one club that floated on the stock market, Borussia Dortmund, got itself in a lot of trouble. There is no appetite for foreign ownership. There is no appetite for private ownership. Um, there is a real effort to, um, you know, to keep prices down. And consequently, the Bundesliga is the best um, attended um, uh, football league in the world at the moment. Um, <clears throat> the atmosphere is very pleasant most of the time. It's quite a bit sort of beer, sausages, and denim, but that is, you know, that's but that's you know that's German working class working class life, isn't it? And it's kind of authentic and true to that in a lot of ways. Um, is there a price to be paid for this? I mean, you know, ask them at Bayern Munich. They would say, you know, given the kinds of limitations placed on us, you know, how can we possibly compete, you know, in the international labour market? You know, it's sort of, and what I would say is, well, there's a choice. There is a choice here. I mean, maybe the choice is, you know, do you want a kind of um, egalitarian, popular, engaging, safe football culture that people can get into, or do you want to win the Champions League? All right. But the price of winning the Champions League, it seems to me, is that you have to be, you have to have billionaires owning your clubs or you have to have incredibly uncompetitive leagues where everything, all the money and everything is concentrated in Manchester United and Chelsea or Barcelona and Real. I mean, I'll, you know, I mean, as a Tottenham fan, so it's less of a, or a Bristol Rovers fan, it's less of an issue. I say, fine, let's not win the Champions League. Let the Spaniards win it. I would rather have Germany's football culture, but with an English sense of humour, and not win, and not win the Champions League than have the current setup. You know, where only basically two or three teams can win the league and win the Champions League a lot. I mean, I say, I don't want it, actually. Sorry, I missed that. You're a Spurs supporter. I am a Spurs supporter. And a Bristol Rovers supporter, now that I live in Bristol. So, you know, for the real, for the real roots, you've got to go to Rovers. But that's the thing, you know, people always assume it's always so much of the debate, particularly when the economists get hold of it, which drives me insane, is it's all about winning. Right? Everything, the metric of everything is can you win? Will you produce competitive teams? And I think, have you, have you been investigating the Football League recently? Have you wondered how Bristol Rovers can possibly exist in a world where winning is everything? You know, it's like, hello, hello, the economics profession, wrong, that's not what it's about. You know, I do not go to Bristol Rovers because I'm looking for glory or because I want victory, right? I'm so not, I went and saw them, I saw them play Walsall last week in minus five degrees centigrade. Neither team's got to win in 16 games. They had a nil-nil draw on the Saturday. It's the rescheduled game from Boxing Day. It's the worst game of football I've seen all season. You know, Rovers wake up for three minutes at the end, get a penalty, miss it, Walsall win 1-0. And the whole crowd, you know, I can see everybody's on the edge of their seats, but not because they're excited, because they just want to go home and get out of the cold. But I'll be going again, because that's what I go for. I go for that kind of, 
a lot of amusing Bristolian banter, I go for the evening out in Bristol, I go for the fun of it, you know. And that's what, so, in answer to your question, there are better uh, cultures, they do come at a price, we have a choice. We have assumed in this country all the time it's only about maximising profit and it's only about winning, and it's not. Very good. Okay, at the back, yeah. One of you, one of you with a decent mic. <laughs> I can perhaps start. And uh, I was interested to hear what you said about uh, the German league, and would wholeheartedly agree with you that perhaps to keep out billionaire foreign owners would make our league very much, a very much better league, although we might not win the Champions League as often. I realise now why you have not mentioned Arsenal. <laughs> it is because you are a Spurs supporter. <laughs> the inevitable consequence of free market in uh, global football is that the strong and powerful and rich get stronger, richer and more powerful. How can we avoid that and if we are to uh, ban foreign billionaire owners how can we uh, have the transition as we've already got some. Thank you. Um, I'm not against foreign owners per se. I mean, it's not an issue of nationalism or xenophobia, really. I'm against all private owners. I mean, my starting point is what are football clubs? They sure ain't the stadium because it changes. Sure isn't the players, isn't the directors. You know, what are they? A football club is the accumulated cultural capital and historical memories of the group of people who have chosen to invest their time, their energy and their love in it. That is, that's why Manchester United is worth anything, is because a lot of people love it and have invested their lives into it. And I just think, and this is a commodity, this can be bought and sold, this is the most insane exchange I have, I have ever come across. It makes, you know, like buying blood for transfusion, you know, look sensible. So I have a profound problem with all forms of private ownership of football clubs full stop, rather than just foreigners. And I think that is absolutely essential. Um, I mean, what can we do about the premiership? You know, in a perfect world, I mean, in a perfect world, I think you have to look at, you know, elements of the American model. It's worth noting, I mean, part of the reason the American model works so well is the draft, right, which allocates the best players to the worst teams, which is so like LeBron James ends up at, is it Cleveland? Cleveland, okay, who were like, you know, nowheresville. So it's like, you know, Wayne Rooney arrives and, uh, and the head of the Football League goes, you, South End. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sort of is, isn't it, really? And, you know, the problem is that, you know, with a global, that only works for Americans, of course, you know, and they can buy Dominicans outside of the draft. So there are... So there's a problem following that model, but there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I think, you know, A, everyone who's, the whole debt thing's got to stop, right? And Platini is putting his foot down. So anyone who's in debt is not going to be in the Champions League. So the nonsense that's been happening, I mean, which is why Abramovich has said, okay, it's not debt. 
will take shares in Chelsea, having pumped in 400 million. That's got to stop. All of that business has got to stop. And all of, you know, we have to have absolutely lethal, laser-like levels of transparency and accountability. I laugh. I was listening to some pumped-up agent who was saying, all oh, these, they're big, they're big, big, big companies, big firms, these, or oh, you'll never be able to regulate them. Just like the bankers say, oh, you'll never be able to regulate us with a token tax. It's all too complex. And I just sort of think, well, you guys managed to keep track of my account amongst 38 billion that you've got and charge me every penny on every transaction that you want. Oh, we can't tax you? Same with the football clubs, you know. The claim is, oh, no, it's all too difficult. This is crap. Absolute crap. I mean, all of these businesses actually are complete Mickey Mouse businesses anyway. 250 million, you know, turnover at Manchester United. Ha, ha, ha. My little Tesco Metro around the corner's taking that in a year. Never mind Tesco's itself. I mean, that makes me laugh. They're all such big businesses. You know, it's chicken shit. It's chicken shit as businesses. And that's the big ones, let alone the little ones. I mean, Bristol Rovers bloody hell, uh, you know. So the idea that they can't be regulated and they can't be made transparent and they can't be brought to brook, this is about political will. This is about political will. And, you know, governments, uh, you know, governments can't intervene. My ass. You know, this is easily dealt with. You just need to pay some money for some decent forensic accountants to look at, look at it. Beyond that, we've got to look at the division of the money. You know, we've just got to look at the division, the division of the money through television and through winnings. And the Champions League, they've got to think about that because that introduces such, because there's so much money to be made from it and it's so madly skewed. You know, in 2004, Manchester United, right, who were beaten by Porto, wasn't that nice when Mourinho jumped up and down on the line, right? Porto win the Champions League, United are out in the round of 16. Who makes more money out of the Champions League? Manchester United. You know, Porto win it and they win less, but Man United have got a big market, you know, a big TV market. So we've got to address ourselves to the way the television money, which for most clubs is still, you know, the main, the main bit of it. We've got to address how that, how, that is, how that is divvied up. And again, I think that can be, well, we're into difficult political territory, but I think pressure has to be, has to be applied to change, to change that. Um, you know, the limitation of uh, amounts of debt, openness and transparency. I mean, I think at the very least what we can do in the short term is we can insist that every football board, every board in the country has a fans representative that is elected. You know, and what, you can't find the constituency? Make it season ticket holders. Right? Let's start there because they're an easy constituency to find, easy to poll, not expensive and probably reasonably representative of the wider constituency of fans. So I would, you know, it's just like Germany, you know. The idea that you would have a board in Germany without a member of the trade unions on it, it's just not in the universe. And I just think that's where we've got to, you know, that's where we need to be starting, starting here. I mean, you know, I don't have any answers. It's I'm, a debate. I'm going to have to blow the whistle at this point. Do that. Tonight's attendance has not been 50,000, but 100 people at the Aldwych on a rainy, rainy Thursday night are very grateful to you for another kind of very serious play. So thanks, David, very much. Thank you.